Well, good morning. To welcome you to Redwood, if you're uh, visiting with us, if it's your first time here, we're happy to have you and, and honored and humbled that you would come spend your Sunday morning with us. Um, if you have been here since day one, we appreciate that you're still here with us. And if you're anywhere in between there, again, like I say, we're, we're glad to have you wherever you fall uh, on that spectrum. We're in the middle of this series called uh, Shoes, where we're putting on a different pair of shoes and walking with the people who walked with Jesus and kind of seeing the faith that they had and, and seeing how they lived that faith out to overcome various things in their lives and kind of picturing if they were here today, what kind of shoes uh, might they wear. And so over the last few weeks, uh, we have looked at how to uh, put on a pair of running shoes and, and run with endurance, realizing that, that our walk with Jesus and our, our faith in Jesus it's not a, not a sprint, it's a marathon. And we looked at, at Mary, Jesus' mother. A couple weeks ago, we put on a pair of wingtips and talked about a guy named Nicodemus who had to overcome this sense of spiritual elitism, if you will, and, and how, to, how to kind of humble himself in that. Last week, we talked about the woman at the well and put on a pair of stilettos, how to kind of overcome our past, overcome our present situation, and embrace what God has in store for us. Uh, today... Uh, we're going to put on a little more humble pair of shoes. Uh, I don't know how many of you all were, were fans of the comic strip Peanuts growing up. I always liked that one. It was one of my favorites. But there's a strip from several years ago where, where Linus and Charlie Brown are having a conversation. And Linus uh, looks at Charlie Brown and said, when I grow up, I want to be a, a humble little country doctor. Uh, and I'm going to live in the city and get in my sports car and every day drive out of the city into the country, into the small towns, and I'm going to heal people, and they're going to come from miles around, and I'm going to make them better. And in the last little, little frame of the strip, Linus says, I'm going to be the most famous, humble little country doctor in the world. <laughs> and I love that because it kind of captures what we struggle with, I think, a lot of times. I think that as, as humans and as, as people, one of our, our biggest wants is to be humble. We want to be uh, considered modest and humble in, in what it is that we want and what it is that we achieve and what it is we do, yet the opposite of humility, you know this, is pride, which is the easiest sin to grab a hold of. In fact, the very first sin ever committed was a sin of pride, a sin of trying to elevate ourselves to a spot that we don't belong. See, pride is so easy because it comes from this sense of of, of accomplishment, that this feeling we get when we do something, and we want everybody to notice what we've done, and, and we want to be recognized for what it is we've been able to do. And I think especially in our society, kind of our, our American society, we've built this culture of, of uh, independence, and this spirit of, well, I can do this on my own, and, and I don't have to rely on other people, and I don't want to rely on other people. I want to build myself up and do this on my own, and we even teach our kids, when you fall down, you pick yourselves up, uh, kind of this pick yourselves up by your bootstraps mentality of, of not having to rely on other people to be there. And those aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but those can also lead to a very prideful mindset. Because in that, you can get this overinflated sense of your own abilities and your own value and your own worth. And that can lead to this overinflated ego of who you really are. And that flies in the face of what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means becoming like Jesus. And, and becoming like Jesus means embracing the humility that he had. Philippians 2, Paul said this verse I've, I've quoted several times, but I keep going back to it because I remind myself of this all the time. He tells the Philippian church, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Today, we're going to uh, look at how we can get out of this this temptation to fall into the rut of pride, and we're going to slip on a a pair of flip-flops. Or, or maybe a, a pair of, of, of these types of shoes. These are Chacos. These are, are shoes that y- you don't see people wearing necessarily every day in every context. Now, they're becoming a little bit more and more culturally and, and socially acceptable to wear them kind of wherever. And, and I know some people even are wearing flip-flops here today. That's fine. But even 10 years ago, they weren't a shoe you wore just anywhere. These were shoes you wore to the beach or when you were going to be playing in the lake, or, or getting off the beaten path, basically when you were getting out of just the, the social norm of what you did on an everyday basis. You didn't just put these on and, and wear them to the office. Uh, you know, they, they weren't an everyday type of shoe. But to me, they represent somebody who doesn't follow the norm. They represent somebody who doesn't follow this kind of conformity that, that society wants them to conform to and, and, and stick to. And I think if John the Baptist were here today, this is probably what he'd be wearing every day. Wherever he went, whatever he did, he'd probably slip on a pair of Chacos, slip on a pair of flip-flops, and go about his business. Because the Bible says that he went off the beaten path even in his day and time. See, John the Baptist, if anybody other than Jesus had this this, this sense or this opportunity to live a a proud, prideful lifestyle, it was him. After all, he was born to very honorable parents. Uh, Both his mom and his dad were born in priestly lines. They were very well respected. His father was a priest of Israel. Uh, He he was a cousin to Jesus. But, But John the Baptist, the Bible says, lived out in the desert by himself. He wore clothes made out of camel's hair, which was weird at the time. He ate locusts and honey. He didn't do things like most people did them. He kind of went about his own thing. We might say he was a free spirit or, or marched to the beat of his own drum. Yet there's some things about him that are so neat. After all, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in his mother's womb. No, it doesn't say that about anybody else. He was given this commission to be the forerunner or the table setter for the Messiah. And this was at a time when the Israelites hadn't heard God speak in 400 years. He's given this task that sounds just unbelievable. When he starts his ministry, he has this immediate success and gains a massive following of people. And yet, at the height of it, he walks away. He steps aside. I mean, even Jesus himself says in Matthew 11 that John the Baptist is the greatest man who's ever lived. But right at the the, the top of his ministry, when everything is seemingly going as well as it could possibly go, and he's, he's at the, the risk of having everybody just inflate his ego and tell him how great he's doing, he steps aside. You've heard me talk about uh, a certain pastor that, that's in Kentucky that I really look up to and admire. He's one of the most humble people I've ever met. This is a guy who preaches every week to 15,000 people. He's got book deals. I mean, he's, he's what a lot of pastors really aspire to be. And he, he said this to us one time, and it, it rocked me. He said, I love my job, but he said, if somebody better comes in, I'll leave. I'll get out of the way. I'll let them have it, because that's who God wants to be here. That's what John the Baptist does. We're going to be in, in John chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles. 
John, the book of John, Gospel of John, uh, not written by the same guys. It's written by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. But this is right at the peak of John the Baptist's ministry. So starting in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 22 of John, it says, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. This is a few months before he gets put in prison and then executed by King Herod. Verse 25 says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. This is such a, an interesting thought, because this is a follower of John that's saying this, one of his disciples, and he's threatened by what's happening. He's threatened for John. He's saying, look, this guy that, that you just said was coming later, he's already here, now what do we do? And it would have been very easy, I think, for John to get defensive. But I love his response. And I I don't use the message translation very often, but I love how the message puts his response. Starting in verse 27, John says this, it's not possible for a person to succeed, and I'm talking about eternal success, without heaven's help. You yourselves were there when I made it public that I was not the Messiah, but simply the one sent ahead of him to get things ready. The one who gets the bride is, by definition, the bridegroom. And the bridegroom's friend, his best man, that's me, in his place by his side where he can hear every word is genuinely happy. How can he be jealous when he knows what the wedding, uh, knows that the wedding is finished and the marriage is off to a good start? That's why my cup is running over. And I love this last line. This is the assigned moment for him to move into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. I love that. Because John does something here that we would be wise to do today. And that's he allows his faith to become big enough to, to allow his spiritual life to mature into humility. And in that, he understands this simple thought, that humility stems from understanding who God really is and acknowledging who we truly are. And, and what he does here, at the end of this, he gives one sentence This one line is one of the best sermons ever preached. Verse 30 of this this chapter, he says, He must become greater, and I must become less. He must increase, and I must decrease. And that's the, the, the catch right there to understanding what it means to be truly humble in God's eyes, is we must make him more and pull ourselves down. So how do we do that? A couple of parts to this, and, and John breaks this down, starting in verse 27. How do we make God greater? Number one, you have to understand that God is ultimately, absolutely sovereign. Verse 27, John says this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. See, as Christians, I think it's very easy for us to acknowledge that, that all of our talents, our abilities, uh, even, even our gifts, even our, our material things, houses, finances, etc., come from God. As Christians, we acknowledge that. But how often do we allow that mindset to trickle down and, and permeate every single part of our lives and notice that everything comes from God and is accountable to God? And even within the church, That means what we do comes from God, and how we do it should come from God. 
So in other words, our ministries come from God. He's sovereign even over what it is that we do. I've told you guys my story, and, and, and if you've been here, you've heard it about how I spent years in the classroom. I was a teacher, I was a coach, and, and felt God calling me into something different. And so about four or five years ago, we started down this path towards ministry. Left, left the classroom, went to Bible college, um, you know, graduated there, went to, uh, to a residency program at a church, got this job here. But the parts that I haven't told you the story was this wasn't my first attempt to get into ministry. I tried other times, back when I was younger, when I was in college, back when I was right out of college, uh, the first time, before I got into teaching. And I tried various things, it was high school ministry, or I uh, tried something with music one time for some reason. I'm not very talented with music, but I tried that anyway. Uh, we tried starting a college ministry one time, and every time I tried something, it either fizzled really quickly, or it never materialized to begin with. And it was easy for me at that point in time to, to sit and point the finger and say, well, this didn't work because my church didn't even support me. They didn't even believe in me. They didn't give me the chance to succeed. Or it would be easy to say, well, the situation just it, it didn't allow for this to grow, and, and I just need to do this somewhere else or, or some other place. And it was easy for me to point the finger at everything. But as I got older, I realized what the problem was. See, I failed to realize two things here. First off, I failed to trust God's timing. And I failed to, to, to trust in the other people around me. And I, cause I, I wanted to do this myself. I wanted people to realize I could do this. I wanted to, to get recognized for it. And that's, that's something that I think a lot of younger people especially struggle with. And, and looking back, even at my age now, looking back 10 years ago, that's where I was. I wanted people to, to realize I could do this. But also, something I failed on, and probably more importantly, I failed to deny myself and fully trust God, specifically His timing and His direction. I was doing this my way, because again, I wanted people to realize that, that I could do it. And often I think that, that trickles down to all of us even still. Even in, in the role I'm in now, or maybe if, if you're in ministry, the role you're in now, we, we fail to let go of, of our ministry. And we use that phrase all the time, my ministry, I want my ministry to succeed and do things. And even that phrase gets a little bit dangerous. Because acknowledging God is ultimately sovereign means that you realize any ministry that's even remotely successful isn't yours, it's God's. You get to be the co-pilot. You know, you're not even really driving the ship, you're just sitting there watching him drive it. And, and I have to remind myself of this daily, because I'm very humbled and, and honored to be in this role. I'm, I'm extremely excited to be here. Yet I struggle all the time with these thoughts of overconfidence, with these thoughts of trusting myself too much at times, trusting my own judgment too, too much at times, even bordering on arrogance at times in the role I'm in. And I have to check back and remind myself that I'm humble because God brought me here. And this is God's church. It's not my church. It's God's church. And, and every ministry I'm a part of is God's ministry. I just get to be a part of it. And, and I have to remind myself to have the same mindset Paul had when he told the Corinthian church to follow me as I follow Christ. That I'm a follower just like everybody else here is. And I have to remind myself of that. And trust me, I'm humbled by you all. I'm humbled by the fact that, that you all are trusting me to trust God. To, to trusting me to follow God. And so I have to remind myself, because I never want to lose sight of that. I, I never want to lose sight of the fact 
that that's why we're here, is that Redwood Christian Church can continue following God and bring others to follow God. And that only happens when we recognize and, and remember that he's the ultimate sovereign authority. And the same goes for you. Whatever ministry you're a part of, remember that it's ultimately accountable to God. Maybe in the church it's accountable to a person, but that person's accountable to God, and ultimately we're all accountable to him because he is the ultimate, absolute sovereign power. But John continues, because that's not the only way we make God greater. The other way we make God greater is you understand that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to break that down a little bit more here in a few minutes, but moving on in verse 28, he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In this, uh, this culture, uh, there was kind of the way it worked is, is a guy's best friend or most trusted friend or maybe his brother, some very close companion that, that was kind of his top friend, one of his responsibilities was helping to get this guy a bride. So he'd find a woman for her and he would, would bring her and kind of prepare her for the groom. And when he would take her all the way up and literally walk her up and hand her off to the groom and then he would step back and he would beam with pride and joy because of what his friend was getting. And that's John. You look through the, the Old Testament and you see all these illustrations and all these, these, these mentions of, of, of marriage and it refers to God and Israel. God's the bridegroom, Israel is his bride. And when you get to the New Testament under the New Covenant, that, that changes to Jesus and the church, but that hasn't happened yet. And so what John is saying here, he's telling the people of Israel, I am just simply the best man. I, I'm the friend of the bridegroom, and I am bringing you to him. He's right over there. This, this is God. This is Yahweh. And, and he's the Lord. And I love it because John is just so excited and happy to get to do this. In fact, I love how he caps off uh, th this, this um, saying in verse 29, and I love how the New Living Translation puts it. He says, I am filled with joy at his success. That's humility. That's something that a lot of us struggle with, and I, I'm one of them. Now, I don't necessarily struggle with joy at other people's successes. For me, where I struggle with it is when I'm not having any successes, and somebody else is. And particularly when somebody else is having success at something I thought I should have had success at already. And, and, and this is a reality check for me. This is a humility check for me. Uh, going through the program that we were in last year, uh, there were 42 of us in it. And I was about the last one that got a job. That was tough. That was a, a huge check on my pride. And, and specifically when, when guys got jobs that I thought I should have got. Because I was more qualified. I was older. I had a better resume than they did. And they got them. And it's tough for me to say, I'm really happy for you. And be honest about it. Maybe you've been there. Maybe some of you are there now. That's difficult. But what John is saying here is that he finds true joy and true pride because of what Jesus is doing. And I love that. He is making him greater. He is, he is rising, raising him up and, and allowing God to become more. But that's only part of his thesis he makes here. This sermon is two parts. He must become greater, but then John says, I must become less. 
That's tough. How do we become less? See, I, I fully believe you can't make God become greater until you make yourself become less. So how do we do that? Again, it starts kind of with, with two things. The first we kind of just hit on. We'll take it a step further. To make yourself less, you have to remember that Jesus is Lord and you're not. That sounds simple, right? <laughs> As Christians, we acknowledge that. Yes, Jesus is Lord, God is Lord. We, we say that. But have you ever really stopped and broken it down and thought about it? See, I, I love how Peter uh, praised this sermon. Acts chapter 2, that the church launches, the Holy Spirit shows up, the, you know, the day of Pentecost, and, and the inaugural sermon of the church takes place. And Peter concludes the sermon in Acts 2, verse 36. He says this, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. And I think the way that's worded, that order, Lord and Christ, is intentional. See, Christ was obvious. John the Baptist is pointing that out. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach. Mashiach means Messiah. That translates to the anointed one of God. Uh, John chapter 1 talks about that, that, that Jesus is God and was God and always has been God. And again, as Christians, I think we understand that. But the word Lord, that's a title that has been used throughout the centuries. Christ has only been given to one person. That's a title. It's not really a name. It's been given to one person. But Lord, that's been used throughout the centuries. Our, our, our American culture, we don't really use it. You look at European cultures. English culture has used it. The word Lord simply refers to somebody of authority, specifically somebody who has authority over you. So think of a master with servants. They might refer to that master as Lord. And so what Peter is basically saying here is that the person who's called Lord, there's a certain amount of honor and dignity and power that comes with that. And what he is saying here, he's claiming that in order to fully recognize Jesus as the anointed one of God, you have to submit to his authority and make him the ruler over your life. And again, that sounds easy. And you may think, well, I'm doing that. But are you? Is Jesus the Lord over every part of your life? Not just some parts, but every part. Just to throw a few of them out there. Is Jesus Lord over your finances? Is Jesus Lord over your relationships with other people? Is Jesus the Lord over all the daily decisions that you make? I mean, I'll be honest, I, I struggle with all three of those sometimes, making him the Lord over all of those. Is he Lord over your ministry? Are you allowing Jesus to direct and guide your ministry? Whatever you do, whether it's here at Redwood, whether it's outside the church, whether it's in the community, are you allowing him to direct and guide every step your ministry takes? That's tough. But if you want to become less, that's what we have to realize. Jesus is Lord and you're not. But the second thing John the Baptist understands, to make yourself less, you have to stop comparing yourself to others. That's easy to do. We, we live in a culture that's very fast-paced. It's, it's results-oriented. It's, it's materialistic. And so we compare ourselves positively or negatively to other people. And, and just to use myself as an example here, that's very easy for me to do. In the church, we have, have certain ways of, of, of measuring success. And, and we have what we call measurables. And those are things like a weekly attendance or giving or baptisms or 
how many people are plugged into small groups, I mean, so on and so forth. And we can look at these numbers, and it's very easy for me to look at those and say we're doing good or, or we're not. And it's especially easy for me to take those numbers and see what other churches are doing. And, and look at other churches, and, and our numbers are better than theirs. I was like, man, we're doing really well. I must be a great pastor. I must be a great leader because look at what we're doing. Or I could flip that, and I can look at a church that's higher than we are and say, man, I'm struggling. I'm not very good at this job. Uh, we're not doing very well. And that's a dangerous trap to fall into. And, and that's what John is doing here. He realizes where he is and what his place is, and he doesn't fall into the trap that, that his followers are, are, I think, unintentionally setting for him to start comparing himself to Jesus. He knows what, what Paul talks about later, that in order for ministry to happen, we're all parts of the same body. And some parts are more glamorous than others. But all parts are necessary in order for the body to function properly and fully. And, and I think what, what it boils down to is this, true humility when it comes to the kingdom of God, it acknowledges your true purpose in God's kingdom, and it allows you to understand that we're all equally valuable. Now, some people get up here on stage. Uh, some of us speak, some of us sing. Some people are noticed in what we do here. Some aren't. If you came here throughout the week, you're going to see many, many servants not getting noticed a bit outside of our office for what they do. A uh, couple that, that, that popped into my head, and uh, they were in first service, so I don't get to embarrass them a second time. But I don't know how many of you guys know Jim Holt. Little Jim sits right here in second service every week. He's here about four days a week, out there by himself, taking care of flowers. I'll see his little red truck sitting out there, and he's here all afternoon. And I, I was teasing him after first service and, and uh, said, I wasn't trying to pick on you. And he said, I just thank the Lord for good health that I can do it. And that's his spirit if you know him. He's here all the time. Nobody sees him unless you happen to drive by or you happen to be here. And he does it anyway. Another one that popped into my head is Kathy Burns. You guys see Kathy on Sunday morning. Say so you can clap for her. You'll see Kathy in, on Sunday mornings over here with our kids, but unless you just happen to be here, you don't see her here all afternoon on Tuesday working with uh, Terry and Peggy and their crew unpacking boxes and sorting boxes, and then you don't see her here hours before a wedding or a funeral and hours after a wedding or a funeral cleaning up and doing things. In fact, yesterday uh, was Bobby Pruitt's memorial service. She was here all afternoon after it was over, cleaning tearing down tables, setting up the kids' area by herself. And that was, she was here because she loves to do it. Not because she's looking for praise. And, I mean, she was, was uh, later she said, man, you shouldn't have talked to me about, about me like that. <laughs> she doesn't want the recognition or praise. And, and they're not the only two. There are so many more people here who do things like that behind the scenes. If you came in on, on a Monday morning, you're going to see people uh, sorting out the prayers and praises on the C-mail cards and, and taking care of the finances. If you came in on a, on a Thursday, you're going to see people stuffing the bulletins. and They're doing little things that, that probably most people don't think about need to be done. And nobody notices unless they're not done. When you think about that. And what I love about that is, is all the people who serve around here, all the people who help around here, you guys take such a burden off of my plate and off of Daniel's and, 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 and Pam's and the rest of our staff. You take burdens off our plates and you make our jobs much more manageable and you make our jobs much more free and open. 
when you do that. And without you, the church doesn't work like it is. We're not able to do what, we, what, we, what it is that we do. And the thing I love the most about it is, is everybody who serves here, you take such pride in what you do, but not pride of what you do. There's a difference there. I, I, I always talk about good pride and bad pride. Good pride in what you do means you do it uh, to a certain standard because you want to do it well. But pride of what you do is you want to be noticed for it. And that's not the case. People here are, are so willing to just serve. In fact, it reminds me of a quote by Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson when he said, a great man is willing to be little. See, I love it because the people who serve around here, and, and again, there are so many of you, you do it not to be noticed by people, not to impress others, but you do it to bless others, and you do it to worship God. See, I think true humility, when it comes to, to making God greater and making yourself less, increasing Him and decreasing you, it means that from time to time, you kind of have to buck the trend, and, and you have to kind of wear your chacos to the office, you kind of have to, to maybe wear your, your flip-flops with a suit and tie. In fact, that was a joke yesterday that somebody wanted me to do, was to wear this with a suit and tie today. Sorry, it didn't happen. <laughs> but it kind of means you buck that trend that society sets, and you stop conforming to the way the world is running today. Because you're pulling yourself back, and you're becoming a part of something greater. Here's a takeaway. What do you do with all this? Here's a takeaway. Kind of been setting this one up here. Get involved serving the church. A lot of you already do. And here's kind of my statement on this. If you're already serving the church, I'm not going to ask you to do anything more than you're doing. Thank you for doing what you do. If you serve, thank you. Uh, there's this, this concept called the 80-20 principle. You've probably heard of it. And it, it exists in basically every organization that exists today, and it states that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and there's a lot of truth to that, yes. I want to get rid of that because I want everybody to get involved some way, somehow, and we all become part of the body, and we're all helping to make the church move forward. So if you're not already involved here, get involved. Find out how you can serve. Talk to one of our ministry leaders if there's a certain area you're interested in. Talk to whoever is in charge of that ministry. If you don't know, check with us as staff, check with the elders. We'll point you in the right direction. Coming up sometime this summer, we're going to have kind of a ministry fair. We put all of our ministries on display, and you can see what's going on and who's, who's the point person in charge of it. And you can get more information about how to get involved with those particular ministries. I'd love to see everybody here doing ministry at Redwood. I'd love to see everybody here becoming less and making God more. Because when that takes place, when that happens, we as the church are going to make a major, major impact for God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful just for the examples of humility that you have, have shown us. So God, I pray today that you would allow us to become more like they did to do things like they did, which was to become more like Jesus. God, I pray that uh, even for in my own life, Lord, that, that my struggles I have every day with pride, God, with, with just trusting myself more than trusting you and the Holy Spirit, Lord, that I could learn how to overcome that. God, that I could, could learn to let go of, of my own 
abilities and my own desires more and more. And God, I pray that, that everybody here today, wherever they are, whatever step they're on with you, God, whether they're looking to, to say yes to their first step or whether they're looking to say yes to their 100th step, God, that we would learn to trust you, that we would humble ourselves and, and, and submit to your lordship. So God, I'm so thankful for this body. And I, I pray that you would, would bless them and, and guide their steps. You would, uh, they would allow you to direct them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.